it's good to be with you again today. We started the series, uh, what is it, six weeks ago, and uh, to look practical ways, what does it look like when we, uh, when we allow the Holy Spirit unrestricted access into our lives and so he can do his transforming work in our lives. And so today we want to look at uh, from me to we. Now I had a choice today because I have seven sermons in this series and next week we're making the shift to uh, Advent and I had a choice between from consumer to steward, which talks about money, (laughs) or from me to we, which I think this is probably a little more difficult task because I feel like it's an impossible task this morning and moving us closer to we and a little further away from me because our society gravitates toward the me side of the continuum. And our culture that we're in actually encourages it. Even the church is on board believing that our relationship with Jesus is only personal. Not only personal, but we believe it's private. It's just about me. We speak, uh, we speak of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's a good thing. We, we speak of our private time of prayer, our we, we, we talk about our private worship that is full of our favorite kinds of music. Even in church, we've drunk deeply from the cultural wells of self-importance and having it my way. We all like to have it our way, right? McDonald's has told us, have it your way. Today, we've heard that for years. We all know the song Amazing Grace, don't we? It, that's, that's a song that's been recorded by all types of artists, from bluegrass to country to punk rock to Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It was written in 1748 by John Newton. At the moment, he was gripped by God's love en route to Liverpool. Now, his eyes were opened. He turned from, uh, from his sin, and he wrote this famous and popular song, Amazing Great Grace. And everyone lived happily ever after, right? No, I wish it was that. I wish that was true, but it, at least the slaves in the bottom of the ship at the time didn't live happily ever after because Newton was a slave owner. He was not only a, he was a trader. He, re, he was a slave trader. He penned this beautiful poem of grace in the comfort of his cabin while many Africans sat huddled as cargo in the bottom of a rocking boat. Now at first, God's grace was amazing enough for Newton's salvation, but it didn't cause him to release the slaves. In fact, After the song was written, he boarded another ship and traveled from village to village buying human beings. He then sailed across the Atlantic studying his Bible in his quarters while 200 slaves were squeezed into the hall, shackled two by two, and almost a third of them died during that long, torturous voyage. And when they arrived in South Carolina, Newton delivered them to their new owners knowing full well that they would finish their lives in hard toil and oppressive labor while he sat in church services and strolled through the peaceful fields and woods outside Charleston, probably thinking and saying something like, isn't God good? There are cultural sins that people in every country and every generation, every era are blind to. Newton might have experienced the grace of God personally, but he was still blind to the sinful ways that he engaged in. He bought into the assumptions of his day. 
He was surrounded by and immersed in his culture. And asking him to define slavery would be like asking a fish to define water. We need to stop and realize we are all a product of our culture. It didn't make it right. It was still sin. It was a cultural sin, one that millions committed at the same time. Thankfully, Newton lived long enough to realize this as the abolition movement gathered steam and many leaders in our country and in the culture began to challenge the assumptions that slavery was okay, to own another human being was okay. So later in life, God's amazing grace moved Newton from me to we as it redeemed his view of slavery. It led him to understand and confess his sin of slave trading. And Newton even later published a work called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade to support the abolitionist movement. But first he had to confess his sin, the sin of the culture, one for which he too was culpable. He said it was, an, I quote him, a confession which comes too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. In our day, we experience a grace that we can only call amazing. But I wonder what cultural sins will surprise us in our old age. About what will we say? Well, I never thought about it. I I never knew. Let's talk about one that perhaps might surprise us this morning. And I would, I would uh, put out there for you to consider a cultural sin that is at the root of many, if not all, of our problems as society and as a church. Many don't even consider it a vice. In fact, it's mostly viewed as a virtue. I want to talk about the cultural sin most ignored today is individualism. Not individuality. You see, God takes our individual gifts and talents and personality and he works it all together so we're part of his body. I'm not talking about individuality. I'm talking about individualism. There's a lot of things that become bad that are good, become bad when they become an ism. Perfection's not bad, trying to strive to do the best that we can, but perfectionism is a terrible thing. I'm not talking about the Borg here. I don't know how many Star Trek fans we have, but the Borg are bad, bad people. And they'll come up to the Star Trek crew and they'll hear and all of a sudden they'll hear, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the consciousness, our consciousness. I'm not talking about the Borg here, okay? I'm talking about the body of Christ. But if you're an American, this view of life is most entrenched. We've learned to think just the way our culture has taught us to think. Here's how the doctrine of individualism works. I'm a loner. Now, I don't mind being with people. In fact, I like being with people sometimes. Better to be a lone ranger, though, than a longtime member. I'm an army of one. I order my hamburger my way. I have a very specific kind of cappuccino that suits me. I remember standing in line one day at Starbucks, and I mean... The cappuccino this guy wanted was this long. I mean, the name was that long. He just kept adding stuff, you know, very specific, very individual. I, mean, I listened to my, my carefully selected playlist uh, 
through internet streaming, I, I watch my favorite programs at the time I want. I get off my iPhone and onto my personal computer where I log into my blog or my Facebook page. In my religion, I'm in a domination of one because I have personal beliefs that I've made up my mind about. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I read my Bible alone. I have my own version of truth. When I leave church this Sunday, before I, I wonder whether the service was good for anyone else or not, I'll tell you whether I liked it or not, just as I do, and I'll give it thumbs up or thumbs down, just like I would a movie after I leave a movie theater. I have individual rights. I am sovereign over my own choice. I'm sovereign over my own body. My rights extend even to the death of another I may carry in my womb. Have you noticed how I use the word I about 50 times already? We are overly self-conscious, perhaps even selfish and self-obsessed. The internet has changed from a place where we find information to an arena for talking about ourselves. Uh, We have obscure Facebook groups. Uh, for people who confess they use the word like too much. But so far, there are no groups who confess they use the word I too much. We, uh, we compulsively update our, our status or tweet our thoughts, the subject of which is usually the same, me. <laughs> Yet so far, there's no Facebook group called I talk about myself too much. There is a group, however, it has about 10,000 members called I secretly want to punch slow-walking people in the back of the head. (laughs) So over the past five times I've preached, uh, we've been following the disciples as they walk along the way with Jesus, particularly in the book of Mark. And there's a pattern that has surfaced in most of their conversations. Even after Jesus taught them about suffering and dying for for others, they were stuck on themselves and oblivious to each other. They kept thinking that their own private encounter with Jesus was what this new religion was all about while Jesus was trying to do something with all of them together. They kept thinking me and Jesus kept thinking we. As before, they followed Jesus for two years and they still had not shifted in this important way. And so let's, let's look at a few incidents. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum where he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> While Jesus was describing his own sacrifice, there in Luke chapter 9, They were arguing about who's the greatest. They compared themselves. They wanted to know who had the best story, who had the best personality, who had the most spirituality, who had the sharpest mind, who had the highest degree, who had the most impressive achievements. And Jesus had something different in mind. The greatest sermon ever preached is recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 15, Jesus said, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Surely God's going to forgive me, you know. I'm I'm one of his greatest. I deserve it. But certainly he doesn't expect me to forgive those who have sinned against me. I mean, they really hurt me, and they don't deserve it. How serious is Jesus about this? Matthew 5, 23 says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
I mean, it might not be your fault. You don't mind not having something against someone else, but they have something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Leave church. Go make it right before you come and offer your gift. That's how serious God is about our relationships with each other. Amen? Especially in the community of faith. I run to people all the time who think they are spiritually superior to others because they've been in church longer. They've been a Christian longer. I've rubbed shoulders with colleagues in ministry who felt spiritually superior because they had a particular spiritual gift and Paul dealt with that problem in Corinthians. I can be so quick to judge someone who doesn't look or act like me, who doesn't have the same agenda as I have, who doesn't raise their kids like I do. Who, who doesn't have the same understanding of God that I do. While I was pastoring in, in one of my former pastorates, uh, we would do, we had a book club and it, it involved other pastors in town and my staff. I think at the time I had three or four staff members. And so we would pick a theology book and we would read it together. And then we'd come together and, and discuss it. Just one way to keep our minds alive and active and, and talking about things about God. And one week, two of my staff members almost came to blows. <laughs> Because they didn't agree about how God works in our world. One finally stormed out. I mean, I'm just sitting there chuckling because, you know, I think it's funny. They didn't think it was funny. So they finally later apologized to each other. You know, when we think we're better than someone else, we place ourselves in a different category than than, than them. And it usually feeds the belief that I'm the greatest. Therefore, my perspective or my understanding is the right one. Everyone else is wrong. Jesus has this great illustration to warn them of this danger there again in Mark chapter 9, verse 36 and 37. He, he took a little child and had the child stand among them. And then taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of the little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, remember in Jesus' day, a child had no social status. It wasn't like today, man. They had no social status. In the culture of Jesus' day, parents sometimes would even maim their own children in order to send them out to the street to beg because they could get more money through a crippled child than anyone else. The the disciples had this disease called individuality and individualism, and it ran deep. It even raised the spirit of competition among them. Sectarianism says, I'm part of the crowd. I'm part of this system of beliefs. I'm part of this organization. It often leads to, therefore, I am better. I am superior. The sectarian spirit surfaced again when the disciples saw a man driving out demons in in Jesus' name. And I have to chuckle every time I read this, Mark 9, 38. After their last argument about who's the greatest, the disciples boldly reported to Jesus. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. (laughs) People were being delivered from evil. It's kind of comical, isn't it? Good things are happening, but the disciples had bought into this thing that uh, I am the greatest, I am superior, I'm the only one that counts. Our little group is the only one that counts. And they wanted to shut the other guy's ministry down because he was not part of their club. (laughs) The sectarian spirit labels people as worthy or unworthy and treats them accordingly. 
It places itself at the front door of the kingdom and decides who is serious, who's ready, who is genuine enough to enter. I've seen this firsthand experience. One of my churches, there was a matriarch and patriarch of the church. They decided who came in and who went out. They did, and when, when that was beyond their control, they just went crazy because they decided who was serious and who was ready and who was genuine enough and who wasn't. The sectarian spirit can't rejoice and explain when people outside of our own circle is blessed. Here, here again, the disciples put a fence up between themselves and those who were not one of them. Now, do you think the sectarian spirit is still alive in churches today, in Christianity today? Well, I can assure you it still is. Just observe some conversations between Christians sometimes on Facebook. Does anyone here get tired of seeing Christians beat up on each other, especially on social media? I do. I belong to two or three theological Facebook groups. We, we talk about theological topics, and it's amazing to me how quickly our discussions can devolve into mudslinging and name-calling. It's very difficult these days to have a civil discourse, especially about religion or politics, and remain on topic because I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. I'm the center of the universe. And when two centers of the universe clash, I mean, we have a culture now that believes, every person believes they are the center of the universe. Why do we want to beat up on each other when we're following the same Jesus? I don't do it to my kids. I don't do that to people I love, to my wife, to my brothers, to my mom, my dad, my grandparents, my friends. Why do we do it in the church world? It's a lot easier to say things when we're not looking someone eyeball to eyeball, isn't it? And we have a typewriter in front of us or a, a phone. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the belief that I'm the best. Everybody should be like me. Everybody should think like me. Move on to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. A little further along the way, two disciples came to Jesus and asked for a special privilege. Let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in glory. (laughs) When the other 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. (laughs) You're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. You don't deserve to sit in his right hand. I do. I am an I disciple. I want what is best for me, for my personal Jesus. This kind of spirit wants to distinguish itself from everybody else. It's attracted to status or position or hierarchy. It can only lead down, never up. It cannot appreciate one's equal, but only one subordinate, someone they can pass judgment on. It has a hard time sharing the spotlight. Throughout the Gospels, we've seen the disciples' tendency for this. Even today, we can be fiercely loyal to Jesus without being loyal to each other in the community. Did you hear me? We live in a day where we believe we can be fiercely loyal to Jesus without being loyal to each other in the community. We can be deeply loyal to Jesus, but not to his bride, the church. If we don't have one another and care for each other, who is going to? So what does this mean to belong? Because God's plan is community. Many churches today are only gatherings of people who love Jesus more than they love each other. I had a little chuckle one day. I was driving north of Wadsworth up the street and went by a little church that I knew had been through like three splits in just a few years. And their their sign out front said, come and let us love you. (laughs) I, I thought that was funny. 
Some brag about this and even consider this a virtue or a badge of their loyalty to God. Even though Jesus said something exactly opposite in John 15, 12. He says, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. This is my command, love each other. And then 1 John 4, 7 says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know, know God because God is love. Do you ever wonder why God came up with the church? I mean, he could have formed persons of God. Instead, he formed the people of God. Then we all could have stayed home and worshipped in our own way instead of coming together like this if we would have just said we're persons of God instead of the people of God. Why did he put us together? Why call us a body? You know, I could be his bride. Why do you all have to be involved? God in his wisdom, in his intentionality, and purposefully he put us together. A bunch of individuals with one common bond and that bond is Jesus Christ. This is what we all have in common except that we're humans. Well, for the most part, we're humans. <laughs> Jesus is, that, that is what bonds us all together. Do you understand Jesus came to us from a community? He's the son in the Trinity. Now, it's a mystery we can't fully comprehend or explain, but the father, the son, the Holy Spirit is a community. Jesus said over and over, I only came to do my father's will. And then the father said at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. At his transfiguration, the father said, this is my son, listen to him. And then Jesus told his disciples that he had to go away, but that he would send the Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them in truth. And the Spirit would only teach what Jesus once taught, perfect harmony. And the first thing Jesus does, what does he do when he begins his ministry? He finds 12 guys to follow him around and be part of his ministry. That's community. The apostle Paul is still dealing with this in the church. 60, 70, 80 years later after Jesus. He's trying to get across to the church that the head of the body, Jesus Christ, animates all believers as a community. We don't have to do it all by ourselves. You don't have to be all things to everybody and know everything. But as a body, we can be that. Romans 12, 4, Paul in his epistles, in his letters to the churches, 12, 4 says, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, that's where we fit in. We each have a special function. So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, the parts of the body should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Then in his letter to the Colossians, he says there in chapter 3, we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive. Maybe the answer to why the church is this. Maybe we can't be holy by ourselves any more than we can be a one man or a one person trinity. 
Not because God won't let us, but because it's simply a, a contradiction in terms. If being holy is being like Jesus, and Jesus is part of a triune community, and he formed a community when he came to minister, then maybe we are only as holy as our community. I was thinking about a devotional today that I, I did several, I don't know, weeks or months ago, and it caught my attention. It was about miracles, and, and uh, it was about the life of Jesus, and it was the discussion was why do miracles happen sometimes and healing happens sometimes and and the author's thought was this well well sometimes the community that we're part of makes the difference what is their expectation of what god can do in fact jesus himself and the illustration he used was jesus went to his hometown right his hometown rejected him well that's just joseph of mary's son i mean we know this kid you know what this says there He could do no miracles. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, could do no miracles in his hometown. And and to me, that just, wow. You don't think our community makes a difference? It does. How'd you come to church this morning? Did you come to church ready to receive, ready to hear from God? Or did you come with unforgiveness, with grudges, with a bad attitude? You see, we can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Each one of us in this place is, is important. What do you bring to the table when we come together? Maybe our reaction to our community is a sign of our spirituality and maturity. Maybe we, we help each other become holy Maybe holiness is defined in how we love and care for one another. John Wesley believed this. He believed in personal holiness, but he said there is no holiness apart from social holiness. It makes a difference in our relationships. I have an experiment at the family dinner table or the next time you're out with some Christian friends, have a meal. And then challenge each other not to use the word I. Uh, it'll be a good challenge. There'll be, no, there'll be a lot of silence because the only way to have a conversation would be to replace I with, with you or with we. What if during Lent next year, leading up to Easter, instead of giving up something, we gave up the word I as a church and on the way through the lobby to your car, you just can't tuck your head and run. You have to talk to somebody. I ain't going out the door of conversation be something like this. How are you? And then you'd say, I can't say because I'm not allowed to use the word I. Well, the conversation perhaps would be, what do you think, what do you think would be best? How are you feeling? What is God doing in your soul? Where does that sermon land for you? What do you need to pray about? Boy, that kind of community is a great thing to belong to, isn't it? It's what we all want. Dallas Willard said one of the signs of spiritual maturity is is what you no longer think about. Isn't it cool to belong? Wouldn't it be cool to belong to part of a community where we no longer think about ourselves and constantly talk about ourselves? It it is one that is possible. And it's already happened in every age since Christ left us behind as his body. And it's still happening today. Hopefully over and over in this place. And that's the joy of moving from me to we. That was God's plan all along. These thick-headed disciples, I can't really throw rocks at them because I've been thick-headed a lot of times in my life. 
They didn't get it. In fact, it went on for another year. They're still trying to figure out how it can be about them. One day, Jesus gathers them together for a meal, and he, he, he tried to tell them uh, how things were going to end up. He's told them over and over, but they're not getting it. So he reaches out to the middle of the table, and he takes the bread, and he starts to tear it apart. And he says, this is my body, broken for you and you and you and you, broken really for the whole world. Now, I don't know what the disciples were thinking. Probably, well, at least his body will heal, whatever he's talking about. (laughs) Then Jesus grabs the wine in the middle of the table. And he makes it known that what he's talking about is going to cost him his life. This is my body, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins for you and and you and, and you and me. Then he says the strangest thing, eat and drink this in remembrance of me. Jesus wants us to remember the greatest sacrifice anyone has ever given when a man lays down his life for the world. What a great example of someone giving up I for we. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to his father, now remember, Jesus is 100% human, 100% divine. And his humanness, father, if this were up to me, I mean, if it's up to me, I I don't want to do this. (laughs) I mean, one last time, couldn't we find another way to do this? And he prays as if he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, nevertheless, Father, because we are a community, because we are in perfect harmony. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be, be done. Now, how do we apply this in practical ways? Well, I'm going to suggest a few. You want to continue this shift or begin this shift from me to we, then get involved in a Sunday school class. Get involved in a small group. Take a membership class. Join the local church. Loan things to others in community. Let them have or use your best ideas. A few years ago, I came across a church called Life Church, and they've grown to be a huge church. Everything they produce, because they're huge and multi-campus and they got a lot of talented people, they produce their own curriculum, they write their own music, they do their own counseling materials, they do music for every age group. It's just amazing. And they decided that they were going to share everything that they They did with the church at large. Anybody can use their material. They're glad to share it with you because they want to bless the body of Christ with the people that God has blessed them with. They want to be a blessing to the whole church. In fact, the U version of the Bible app was developed by them for all to use free. It's my favorite Bible app. I mean, there's a gazillion devotionals you can go on there and do through the year. There's 30-some translations of the Bible. It's a wonderful app, all made free because they want to use what God has blessed them with to bless the church. Why not begin to pray that God will send people who are not like us or not like you to this church and then encourage them to join it. Train them to become leaders. Practice uh, submitting to the authority. Well, that's a, bad, that's a bad word these days, isn't it? Authority. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. I'll decide. Practice submitting to the authority of the church. Ooh. I'm not talking about an abusive church. I'm not talking about a church where they're taught 
the pastor, what the pastor says is the gospel. You can't approach him even when you see things that are, I'm talking about proper authority. Practice submitting to the authority of the church in the right way. Practice approaching those in authority with your concerns. Instead of talking about what you don't like, go to those in authority and say, hey, got an idea. Here's something I'm concerned about. Practice it in the right way. When we move from me to we, we partner with people we have never met to include people who are not like us so that we become what we have not been and do what we have never done. Let's bow our heads together, shall we? Just reflect for a few moments here. How is, what has God impressed on, on you? What has the Holy Spirit impressed on your mind right now in this place at this moment? You may need to jot it down so you, you don't walk out of here and forget about it. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you specifically this morning? And I found that there can be 60 people here and the Spirit may want to say 60 different things to 60 different people. That's his job. <laughs> he can do that. What's he's impressing upon your mind right now? And then, in what ways has God already made shifts in your soul? Looking over your life, how has, how has he made these shifts in your life from me to we? How connected do you feel to your church? And is this more or less than at other times in your life? And then why? How have you grown or changed because of your association with the body of Christ here in this place at the Medina Church of the Nazarene? And then what next step? would make your commitment to your church more meaningful. And the last thing you can ask yourself is, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear in making a more tangible or meaningful commitment to your church? Father, I thank you for this word. This word is, is it's a good word to us, to each one of us. And our individuality is not a bad thing because you take this unique person that you've created created in your likeness, in your image. And you don't rob us of our, of our uniqueness like the Borg who says you will be assimilated. But you enhance our uniqueness as we find ourselves in Christ and we submit ourselves and commit ourselves to you. And then we find our unique place in the body, in the community. We use our talents, our abilities, our likes, our dislikes, our spiritual gifts to serve one another and to minister to the world. Lord, I just pray that you would not let our individualism get in the way of what you want to make us into as a community of faith. To take seriously when others suffer, we suffer. When they rejoice, we're to rejoice. It's a hard word this morning because we live in the atmosphere of individualism. It's in our, it's in our DNA as Americans to be free. There's nothing wrong with freedom as long as the ultimate freedom is our freedom in Christ. And we use that freedom to serve the church and to serve others, to serve you. Thank you for our time together, for the privilege of coming together and encouraging each other, of worshiping you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.